Our scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 7. We begin reading in verse 1. We hope to read verses 1 through 29 of Acts, chapter 7. Then said the high priest, Are these things so? And he, Stephen, said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto the father, our father Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans, and dwelt in Haran. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land, wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession, and to his seed after him, when as yet... He had no child. (coughs) Excuse me. And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage, and entreat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him in the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob. And Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him. And delivered him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, in great affliction. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren. And Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then said Joseph, and called his father Jacob. Then sent Joseph, and called his father Jacob to him. And all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died. He and our fathers... And were carried over into Shechem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Hamer, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose which knew not Joseph. The same dealt subtly with our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children. To the end they might not live. 
in which time Moses was born, and was exceeding fair, and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he began begat two sons. Thus far in the reading of God's holy word. And we read, you will remember how in chapter 6, <coughs> those seven men were chosen. Stephen was one of them. And they were chosen to help the apostles in the distribution of those daily provisions. These men that were chosen were of good report. They were full of wisdom and full of the Spirit. And what we have before us in chapter 7, as Stephen is proclaiming this message and making his defense before he's martyred, in essence, God's Word is showing that this is what a man full of wisdom and full of the Spirit does. And this is his good report. And the apostles needed those men. This very man, Stephen, was needed. Because remember, the apostles had said that they would be given to prayer and the Word. And that was announcing the primacy of the ministry of the church. Let us never, beloved, as as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, let us never wonder what the number one business is, what the number one activity or what should be the number one heart, what should be the number one goal. And the number one goal and activity and heart are actually two things that work together. It is prayer and preaching. It is the Word of God studied and proclaimed and prayer where we praise God, where we intercede for others, where we pray for men like Stephen. He needed prayer. Remember what we're seeing is that God's Word is showing us how true it is that prayer and the Word are to be front and center in the ministry of the word. Here's a man that needs prayer, and the people to whom he's preaching needs prayer. 
These men will never, ever repent and believe unless God intervenes and works powerfully in their hearts. We, we see this in the flow of God's word here. If it weren't for the conversion of Saul into Paul, we would never know what was the fruit of this very sermon. We don't know of every other person who was hearing, but we know of the man, Saul, whom we read at the very end of the whole account. He was right there receiving the clothing, the the garments of the people who were ready to stone Stephen. Later in Acts is the conversion of Saul, and he becomes the most prolific, the most important. Every time I hear, there's never any, any doubt that this is the man that God has used most in the history of God's church. There's never a man like Calvin or Luther who seems to surpass how God used Paul. And he heard the sermon. And he was prayed for. And so we're being taught how true it is that prayer is central. And it was the word that was being proclaimed. It was the word that found a way to pierce the heart of this man, Paul, even though it was later, not, not immediately at that very message. But Christ came and converted through the preaching of the word. So we're being taught this. We're seeing this in practice. It's like God's word has taught a theory. Prayer and preaching, prayer and the word are central. And now God's word is showing how central it is, how true this is. These were men who are the audience of this message. They are the leaders of the religious system of the day. And they were the ones who should know this message the most, but don't. And so God is using this sermon. God is using Stephen to teach them. And what what we have also is here in this one message. And even as we put some of these messages and acts together, we, we learn so much because we see that the approach is different. What Stephen is doing here is a lot more extensive, at least what's been recorded. Maybe there was even more that he said. And what we, what we learn here are these three things. If we, if we look at this sermon as a whole, but today we're going to look only towards verse 29, we'll see these three things. The first thing is that the message of the Word of God, which is our theme, it is It must be proclaimed. It it, it is not just to be studied. It is not just to be known. It is to be proclaimed to others. We have to ask the Lord that he would open hearts to listen. And then secondly, the message of the word of God begins and ends with God. God is front and central in terms of the message that he has. That is very important. It's very easy, even in churches, for religion to become man-centered and everything turns around man, humans, instead of God. And then thirdly, the message of the Word of God reveals our true need. Even though it is God-centered, it's not like we're not part of, of the message. We, we are the ones who need this message, and this message shows how needy we are. And so let's consider first that it must be proclaimed. We, we really find everything that I said is, is in a capsule form in verse 2, where it says in chapter 7, verse 2, And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. 
The first point, it must be proclaimed, is encapsulated in that little word, hearken. The word hearken means listen. Listen attentively. See, the word is being proclaimed. This man, Stephen, was chosen so that the apostles will give themselves to the word. But it shows how the word is so central. It's not just the apostles. This man, Peter, is, uh, Stephen, is gifted. So he is one who's proclaiming the word. And he begs his audience to listen. And, and you learn something very reasonable here, isn't it? We, we study the word so that we know the word so that... We can proclaim it. But even as it is being proclaimed, beloved, there's, there's a work that must be done on the end of those who are hearing. Because if you go away, if you don't come, if you phase out, if you sleep, if you have a hard heart, you won't do what the little word hearken is commanding you to do. See, there's a boldness here because he's been arrested by these people. So now his audience... His, his church, you could say, <clears throat> are people who have arrested him. They are people who are thinking of killing him. In verse 33, they, they, they had decided that, chapter 5, they took counsel to slay the apostles. That desire to kill is in the hearts of these leaders. We know it because they do it. But with boldness, he tells his congregation, listen. Listen attentively. Listen with an open mind. I'm going to tell you a message. I'm going to tell you a story of your own people. And you need to listen. You need to have an open heart. See, you're not accepting the Jesus that I have proclaimed. But if you listen to the promises from the days of Abraham, and as we walk through, you will realize that this man Jesus is the very one that was promised from the days of old. Listen. Just listen to what I have to say. And beloved, you see, this is what's so precious that we know that Paul, even though it was later, was converted. Many people could probably say, well, yes, there's that verse that the word never returns void. We, We have a proof that there is one conversion. And it was connected. It had to have been because God uses his word. It might not be one sermon that converts a soul. But then after three or four sermons, God works in that soul. And it's the totality of the word that pierces through the heart. God's word does not return void. And if Paul was the only one converted in this sermon, it was worth the whole world. Because, like I said, he was used so greatly. In the church of the Lord Jesus, you get almost the bulk of the New Testament. And it was, it, was God, it was God who inspired Paul to write the letter to the Romans, the first and second to the Corinthians, Galatians and Colossians and Philemon and Philippians and Ephesians and the two letters to Timothy and one to Titus and maybe to, 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 to um, Hebrews. We're not sure if he wrote that. And you read through those letters, and as we're going to see through Acts, he's, he went to almost the whole known world at the time that was safe to go and unsafe. And he had plans to go as far as Spain. Some records believe that he would have gone that far before he came back to Rome and was martyred. But beloved, if you don't listen, 
nothing will ever happen in your heart. It's emphatic how, how the truth works. God is sovereign, and in his sovereignty, he uses means. And one of the means is that he makes you listen. Because then you hear the gospel, and then he gives you faith, and you believe the gospel. But you will never, ever believe the gospel if you don't listen it to begin with. And Stephen understood this. If these men don't listen, they'll never believe. They, they have such a heart hard heart now they need God's intervention they need the Holy Spirit but without the word being heard nothing will happen that is how God works it is through the power of the gospel and so he calls them to listen they were prejudiced against the gospel they needed to listen they were hardened against the gospel they needed to listen their their minds were closed against the gospel but they needed to listen And beloved, no matter what you do in your life, think of it this way. Um, We're talking about how important prayer and preaching are. And maybe you would say, well, I'm never going to be a preacher. Yes, but you'll be hearing God's word and you will be opening God's word. See how it applies to all of us, whether we are teachers and proclaimers of the word or individually and never despise the reality that God can use you to evangelize a neighbor, a little child, a schoolroom, your friends in school. You don't need to need to be a preacher or a missionary to be an evangelist of friends that you ought to love. And there's no better way to love them than to give them the word. And then to give yourself to the word, to study God's word at home, and to pray. That's the foundation, isn't it, of a devotional life. Do you read the Bible and do you pray? day by day by day by yourself and then with your family and then here corporately as a congregation so these these are the basic applications before we go to our second point if god's word and prayer are so central number 1 we individually must be certain to find time, to make time, to be in the Word, and to be in prayer. We, we ought to feel like the most important meal of the day was not used if we don't read the Bible and pray. And I'm sure that if you miss a breakfast or miss, miss a lunch, you'll feel like you're missing something. Well, you should feel like you're missing something more important if you don't read the Bible one day or if you don't pray, if you don't spend time with the Lord because that's central to the life of the Christian. If it is what the apostles had to do, it it, it just indicates what all of us had to do. And remember that one detail. If the apostles were needing prayer so greatly and they were ministered and mentored by the Lord Jesus, how much more? We need prayer. And so that's the first application. The second one is we, as a church, must be committed to the centrality of preaching, to the centrality of the word. Make good use of the word proclaimed and taught. And think of Sunday school. Think of the services. Think of conferences. 
Think of other means. And then think of ways in which we can still be involved corporately where we will encourage one another to be involved in meetings and in conferences. And wherever you hear the word proclaimed, I just heard some time ago that some of our young people are planning to go to a conference in Fort Myers, Florida. And that encouraged me so greatly. I hadn't heard of that specific conference. But it made my mind attuned to, to that conference. I've heard of the Founders Conference. I, I've met the pastor who went to Brazil at the time that he was sta- starting the Founders Ministry. And he's been making these conferences all over America. And now I heard that our young people are going there. And it made me so happy. And, and it encourages me to find other conferences. There are conferences in Quakerstown, not too far from here. In Philadelphia, the Alliance Conference of Confessional Evangelicals, Confessing Evangelicals. There's a Ligonier Conference also in Florida. If you've never been to it, you should put it in your calendar and go. And hear God's word from day to day. Be immersed in God's word. We live in a country where you don't have to travel two hours and you might find a God-centered, reformed, and God-honoring conference. And many of you know the story that I met my wife at a conference in Brazil. I was living close to that conference. I was ministering with the people who organized the conference. My wife with her family came a three-day trip to go to that conference. And I heard when I went to that conference that the Davises had been coming some conferences back. I had been out of the country some conferences before that one, and so I had never met the Davises at the conference, but the one that I did go after my studies, I met my wife. And she had traveled three days to get to that conference with some of her cousins and even her grandmother, who was at the time, I think, was in her late 60s or 70s, Why? Because God's word was being proclaimed. Preachers from America were there to proclaim it was something big. God has used that one conference that was in the heart of of the hub of Brazil in Sao Paulo to now now there's conferences all over Brazil. Dr. Biki has been to so many of them. And it's really brought elements of a reformation, a new reformation, a revival in Brazil. And we, we cannot despise the reality. We can't, we can't take it for granted. that We have so many of these conferences here that in our minds we might think, well, you know, this year I won't go. Maybe next year. No, beloved, put it in your agenda. Maybe once a year go to one of these conferences. Hear God's word because that is central to the life of the church. And, of course, you can hear it in your car, in a sermon, but it's never the same thing. We understand this. We pay a lot more attention when we're in person hearing a sermon than we are if we are driving or even if we're home. We'll end up doing other things. We won't focus in the Word as much. And thirdly, we as a church ought to be committed to prayer. Preaching? Well, then also prayer. And truly seeing this as a responsibility that I have as a believer. To pray, yes, individually. That that goes without saying. That must be central in my life at home. But it must also be central in my life corporately with the body of Christ. 
We have one prayer service once a month, the second Wednesday of the month. I believe beginning with this Wednesday, it will be at 7 p.m. And if you've never been to this prayer service, there may be, of course, a logistics, maybe an hour away that you live, and that's understandable. But beloved, see, there too, think... I've been a member of this church for X amount of years and I've never been to my own prayer service. I, I should have in my heart a sense of this isn't right. I need to go there. I need to go there and pray because prayer is central to the life of the church. This is what God's word is declaring. And each and every one of us has to stop and think, am I making prayer central in my life? And you are responsible to that answer. No one else. We we don't know what challenges there are. There are some people who can't come because that's the night that they're on duty and call. All those things exist. So we're not to judge others, but we can judge ourselves. Ought to. Every time it's been a time of refreshing, it is a time of refreshment. It is a tri- time of blessing. In our, in our prayer services here, there, I can say through the, through the years that I've been here, there's a core group that is so faithful. Some young people, some of the sons and daughters of the families that come. And also what encourages me is when there are some who, because it is hard for them, but they try, and they'll try every, every three or four services. One of them, they're there, and that always is so encouraging because we know it's not so easy in the middle of the busy week. But have you tried? Have you penciled it in? You see, this is where each one has to just examine his heart. How central have I made prayer in my life if it is central to the life of the church? And then for those who would say, you know, it's, it's a formal service. I, I, I don't like to stand up and pray. And those things might be difficult. difficult. Well, every other Wednesday... From 7 to 7.30, we've been gathering a small group. It is like a family prayer. And it is simple, and no one needs to be embarrassed. And we pray, and we intercede. And the pleading in those prayers have been primarily for a nation at war. And, and as long as this, draw, as this war draws out, and I see that it doesn't seem to be, and, and it isn't, there's no nation that is powerful enough to end it, there's no ammunition that's powerful enough to cease it. So that every time that we gather to pray, even if we're just praying the most simple prayers and the prayer of a child to end this war, you can be certain that those prayers reach the very throne room of heaven and they, may be of, they are of greater effect than the logistics of the nations of this world. They have not been able to do a thing. And there's still a people suffering. But it makes us mindful, of course, of all the other needs of the world so that we can pray for missions and we can pray for missionaries in the countries where there's a lot of persecution and the needs that are great when people are suffering in our congregation. And so those are the three thoughts regarding Hearken regarding it must be proclaimed. We individually must make prayer and the word central. 
we as a church must make prayer and the word central. And secondly, the message of the word of God begins and ends with God. And I say this again, we go to verse 2, and after Stephen says, hearken, the very next phrase is, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. And you see there the beauty of the order. He doesn't go to Abraham, who is man. He goes to God, who is Abraham's God. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. Abraham was living as a pagan in Ur as an idolater. That's our third point. It reveals our true need. But our second point is the God of glory. See how it starts with God? And the reason I said it ends with God is because at the very end of this sermon, when they rage at Stephen and they rush him out and they are ready to stone him and they are stoning him, the very last word of this chapter in chapter 60 is Stephen praying to God. And there too you see this reality. Look at this dynamic. We could say this whole chapter are the last words of Stephen to that crowd. And it is the word. His last breath is prayer. He prays for his own soul. And literally his last word is for the crowds, a prayer for the crowds. Look at verse 60. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It begins with God. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. And it ends with God where this preacher is pleading to God for the people who are killing him as a result of the sermon. It's very solemn to think of preaching under these considerations. And notice it is astonishing to think through so many dimensions how God is declaring preaching is central and prayer is central. You would think, well, right now, God, am I supposed to preach? They're about to kill me. If I preach, I die. And God is saying, preach and pray. You notice, because in, in, our, in our ways that are usually pragmatic, we would say, you know what? They're getting stones. Maybe the right thing is not to preach. And God's word is saying no. Even when it's dangerous, even when it's difficult, even if they're about to kill you, it's the right thing to do. And I remember saying this last time too. Jesus himself said, if there's persecution, yes, flee from this city to the next. So we do need wisdom here. Maybe at a certain given moment, protect your family and flee. So I'm not advocating here that we are to give ourselves to martyrdom. It's very different. This man was already uh, captive. He was already arrested. There are moments there have been men of God who wanted to be very zealous, and the church had to plead, Polycarp, flee. No, I won't. And they made him flee. For some events it happened, but then he ended up being captured. We, we should not see ourselves as heroes if we turn ourselves in to be martyred. We're not supposed to do that. The church failed in their zeal. There were many people who would come from, <clears throat> from their... Um, from the, they had been in the deserts. They were like those monks. And they heard there was persecution in certain cities. And they said, you know what? Let, let us go because we're ready to go to heaven. And, and there, there were moments where the empire had to make a law against such things. 
because they were tired of persecuting people who actually wanted to be persecuted or martyred. So I'm not advocating for that. If there's danger, it is wise to hide. But in our hiding, let us find ways to still preach, to still study the word, to make the word known somehow. See, in essence, it's what happens in North Korea. Bibles are not allowed. But that doesn't mean Christians aren't finding a way to find Bibles and to protect their Bibles and to distribute Bibles. And we need to find ways to help them. And not in ways that will put them in danger, but in ways that souls will hear God's word and believe and be saved. And so this is what God's saying. <clears throat> There's a place to preach, and it's, it's central. We need wisdom from God. But even in a dangerous situation, God was telling Stephen, preach. And what did he preach? He preached the glory of God. See, it began with God. And and the reason this is important to see is because we know, now looking through history and looking at our own time, how easy it is for man to become central to the gospel and central to the life of the church. It's, it's kind of a natural thing to happen because we think, well, we, we are to serve people and so we see the needs of people and, and sometimes that becomes the primary ministry of the church to, to do good to people, to take care of people, but sometimes at even ex, the expense of the word where the word is not even being proclaimed to that people. They're receiving medications, they're receiving food, they're receiving counseling sometimes, but not the word. And when that happens... It becomes purposeless. And it becomes nominal Christianity. It's been doing many churches that are now only social churches. Do a lot of good like that, but they don't give the word because they forgot this one thing, that really God is the main thing, not people. We will serve people better when we even understand this. This is never because we don't love people as much as we love God. We, we will love people more when we love God the most, when we really have God as the center of all things. Then we will even love people better because we will see them in the right way. And this is what, <clears throat> this is what we're learning um, in this sermon. What did God reveal? Let's just go through a little portion of this sermon. Well, the first thing we could say is he revealed himself. In, in verse 2, we saw that he appeared to, his, to, to our father Abraham when he was in Macedonia, Mesopotamia. And if you go to verse 30, when he appears to Moses, that will be the very next passage. Look, and when 40 years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness to Moses of Mount Sinai, an angel of the Lord, in a flame of fire in a bush. And, and, and remember the story, God's revealing himself to Moses. The first thing that God reveals, like to Abraham and to all of the different patriarchs, he revealed himself. God revealed himself. And in revealing himself, if you single out everything that... I'll just go through some of the pointers of what he's, what he's revealing about himself. It's in essence showing this, that he is a sovereign God. That he is in control of everything. That he is God. And Abraham, these gods that you've been raised with and that you see that Babylon has and Ur has, those are not gods. But I am God. 
And notice how he shows his providence. In verse 5, we could say there, he is showing his sovereignty by making promises. Promises that would be impossible to keep if he were not sovereign. Look at verse 5. And he gave him none inheritance in it, when when they were there at first. No, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him when as yet he had no child. He made that promise and we know that he kept it. We know the history. Verse 8 is another promise. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob. And Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. Now, this, this covenant of circumcision had all to do with what we saw this morning. And what we see is so central to the gospel itself. The promise of forgiveness. Circumcision was saying that Abraham, you and and all of you, men and women, have sinned. And that sin has to be put away. So that symbol of a part of the flesh to be cut off and sent away. God was promising, I will forgive you, but there will be the need of blood. Abraham wasn't hearing it as well as you and I know of it now. But through the totality of all the promises and as the history of redemption flowed through, we understand God was telling Abraham, someone will take your sins, Abraham, and his blood will be shed. But you will have a mark where your blood will be shed to remind you, yes, sin will go away, but not without the shedding of blood. And God was promising forgiveness because he's sovereign. And we, we see today, beloved, we are the ones who can look back and see it is true. And now we don't need circumcision because we have Christ. So he's even fulfilled that promise of circumcision. Then verse 6, we could say, he provides. So he makes promises, verse 5 and 8. In verse 6, we could say he provides. Look at verse 6. And God spoke on this wise that his seed should sojourn in a strange land and they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil 400 years. The second part we'll deal with later, which is a sad part that they were enslaved. But remember that when they first went to Egypt, that was their salvation. There was no food in Canaan. They would have starved. But Joseph was there. There was bread in Egypt. And when Jacob and all his children went to Egypt, they sojourned there. They were protected. So God promises and he provides. Verse 7, he judges. Yes, they will enslave and entreat them evil. But look at verse 7. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And beloved, you saw the the sad note in which we ended that third stanza, 151, where it says, All day they rest my words, their thoughts are full of hate. They meet, they lurk, they watch, as for my soul they wait. These these are the enemies of God, of, of God's people. Shall they by wickedness escape thy judgment right? O God of righteousness, destroy them in thy might." God is revealing 
that he is a God of judgment. No nation will go unnoticed. And this nation, who was first evil to God's people, made them into slaves and he treated them evil, God will judge them. God is revealing all these things. And, and just think of this. You, you see what, God, what, what Stephen is doing, how God is using Stephen to tell these people, those very people are about to treat very evilly the preacher, Stephen. God is warning them, don't be like Egypt. To this, my preacher. But that's what they're about to do. God promises, he provides, he judges. Verse 9, he protects. Look at verse 9. And the patriarchs, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Can you imagine to go from being a slave sold by your own brothers to becoming the second in command in Egypt and then being used of God to save your own family who hated you so that they have life and not death. That is sovereignty. And I'm calling it protection because God protected Joseph. And then if you go to chapter 17, not chapter, but verse 17, we have there the fulfillment of promise. So God not only makes promise, he also fulfills them. Look at verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. And then you know the story. Yes, another king arose. They evil entreated God's people, but Moses came forth. And that's the last thing. He raises prophets. Verses 20, 20 and on is the beginning of the section on Moses, in which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair, etc. You see all the things that, that he's revealing about God. He makes promises, promises, he provides, he judges, he protects, he fulfills promises, he raises the prophets. Now, raise, yeah, raises prophets, to calls prophets. Now, all of this, the last thing in this second point before we move on, all of this is history. So God reveals himself to his people in history. And the reason this is important is because we realize and understand that Christianity, it's not just the ideas of people. Christianity is not a philosophical system. It is not just some people got together and said, let us invent a religion that sounds good. It's not one man. It's not a group of men who came up with some thoughts and good ideas. It is revealed to us in the context of history. And the key thing about this is this is where becomes a proof that only a living, sovereign God can watch over the development of a religious system which never varies from its premise. There is never an Old Testament message and a New Testament. And there's never a message of Paul and a message of Peter and a message of Moses and a message of Isaiah. No, all of these are men and brethren together who believe in the same God and the same Messiah, the same system. It is not their ideas, it is God's idea, and he revealed it in history. There have been kingdoms like 
Egypt that tries to destroy it, but it doesn't get destroyed. We saw in our New Year's Eve sermon a brush through, a survey through the days when they were in captivity in Susa under the Medo-Persian Empire, under the Medo-Persian Empire, yes, and how Haman wanted, in essence, to destroy every single living Jew. Who can stop that but a sovereign God? And he uses history. Esther was a queen of the Medo-Persian Empire. Joseph was second in command in all of Egypt. Moses, we saw, was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And Jesus was born from a virgin in Bethlehem. You can go to Bethlehem. And then you can travel to Jerusalem. And you can see the fields where very likely could be where Calvary was. And see, that becomes very emphatic <clears throat> that Christianity is not somebody's idea. God used history. Now, just really quickly, why is history important? Well, it helps us to know that God is sovereign. That's what we just finished speaking of. It's impossible for everything to work just right if it, it, if it weren't a sovereign God ruling over nations that are massive. Secondly, history helps us know that God remains interested in this world. We see his love in history. And, and this will, will be especially explained in our point that we're about to go to that will speak of sin. You know, because there's sin in this world, it's quite tempting to not be interested in this world. But God is he remains interested. And then thirdly, history helps us know that God is not only interested in today, He's also interested in all of history. And, and this helps us then know that we must be humble and understand history did not begin with us. And the reason I say this is because as you listen to the modern man's philosophy they in essence believe that nothing from the past matters. And because of the evolutionary mindset, the mindset is we're developing, so why will we go to the people behind us who are less evolved than us now who are better educated? And there's a, a minimizing and a, and a despising of history of the past. Whereas we look God in history and we see his hand and there has been no such evolution man has been the same all the way through we have learned a few things and there's been different technologies but man is exactly the same and our problem is the same and this is where we go to our third point it reveals our true need. Beloved, this is one of the areas that proves the reality that there is no such thing as evolution. With all the technology that we have, with all the schooling, with all the philosophizing, because see in the late 1800s they were saying that's all we need. As soon as we have more education, as soon as we are better inclined, as, as soon as we're more polite as a people, we'll stop being as those brute beasts from which we came and we will become more civilized and better. And then came the first world war and then the second. 
And now we're living in days where we realize things have not changed. And no matter how amount of education, no matter how much, how many degrees people have gotten, we are absolutely the same. Left to ourselves, we are barbarian and we destroy people. That's our need. And the Bible shows it. The Bible shows our need. And and I'm just going to begin to show this today. Um, And and what, what... Stephen is doing is this, basically saying, you men listening to me, be careful because you're about to align yourselves as these men in my story, in our history. And then he showed it with, with quite, quite a lot of description, things that we don't even see in Exodus. He puts it here by inspiration. When Moses understood that he was one of them, he went to walk among them. And when he saw them in their need, he protected them. But he ended up killing an Egyptian. So when he goes there again and sees two of the Jews fighting one with another, and he tries to be a mediator among them, one of them is greatly offended and says, So are you going to kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? And what did they do? They rejected their only deliverer. Now think, beloved, put yourself in the whole situation. These were slaves in Egypt. One of the princes is a Jew. He's walking close to you. Wouldn't you, in the reasonable mind that you have, think maybe there's hope in this man? He might be our deliverer. That's what Moses thought. This is what we have here in verse 25. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. See, for Moses, it was clear. I'm, I'm a Hebrew. I have been raised as a grandson, as a, in essence, of Pharaoh. If I see my Hebrew brethren, they will obviously applaud me and receive me as their hero. But they don't. And they threaten him as if they will tell on him that he was a murderer of, a, of an Egyptian and he flees, which indicates that there was probably a lot of animosity in court who didn't like the idea that there was a Hebrew who was like a prince. And when he was being accused of being a murderer, that was probably Pharaoh's chance to get rid of Moses. And so he fled. And you see, this, this isn't a mystery. He's telling these people who are about to kill him. This Jesus is your only Savior. And you're about to do the same mistake and reject your only Savior. See, Moses was their Savior with a little S. He was going to be their deliverer, and he ended up being their deliverer. But as they see him, they reject him. And that, beloved, shows our need. So this is a picture of who we are by nature. We, 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 don't, we don't reason. Because put yourself, see, see think of this again. Imagine you're, you're a slave. You, you've been scourged on your back. But all of a sudden you see a Hebrew prince and he's walking close to you. See, I think it's because we are believers and our, our, our hearts are open. And so you can understand this in reason. But see, the reality is, if you're not a believer, I'm presenting you a better prince than Moses. 
This morning we spoke of a man who went to Calvary and carried sins away. And you must believe to have him. And there are people raised in the church who will still not believe in Jesus. Beloved, if you're one such, do you see you're like these very people? These men saw the prince of Egypt. He's Hebrew. Maybe there's hope. No, they didn't think that. They, they were jealous of him. They hated him. They threatened him. And they made their hero, their supposed savior. <clears throat> Moses thought they could suppose, but they had no idea of it. If you're rejecting Jesus right now, you're just like these people. And see, your eyes need to be open. And again, beloved, this is why we need prayer. <clears throat> My preaching can't do it. But God's Spirit can. And He uses the preaching. And this is so that, this is why my prayer is, even as these words go forth, God's Spirit can take hold of, of one who is wayward, one who does not believe in Christ, and he or she may say, Lord Jesus, be my Savior now. I trust and I believe. <clears throat> Have you come to Christ with a believing heart and pled for His salvation? I want to end with these words. These were words in a sermon from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was referring to Toplady's hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. And he said this to his own congregation. If you have gotten any glimpse of the God of glory, you will realize that your only hope is in the Rock of Ages, the Son of God, cleft for you. Have you ever pled with Him? Let me hide myself in thee. <clears throat> he is ready and willing and waiting to receive all who cry unto him with penitence and repentance and in the depths of their human despair. Cry unto him and he will hear. And that is my pleading to you. If you have not yet come to this Savior by faith and repentance that you would see that history reveals Him. It is all about Him, but He reveals Himself to you in your need for Him. But you must plead, and you must pray. And the words from the hymn are very timely. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in Thee. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God, <clears throat> we praise Thee, Lord, for Thy glory. We praise Thee, Lord, for revealing Thyself to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob and to Moses and to us through Stephen in this message and revealing, Lord, that, that Thou art sovereign over all things. And we pray, Lord, that we would be as those who acknowledge our own need. That even those, Lord, who have come to Thee by faith and are saved, we, we never graduate from needing Christ, needing His forgiveness, needing His mediation in heaven. And we pray, Lord, that Thou would cause us to grow in our faith and grow in our love of Thee. Lord, help us to ever see Thy Word and make it central, see prayer and make it central in our own lives 
because it is supposed to be and it is central in thy heart. May it be in ours as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.